invite you now to stand with me as Bill comes this morning to read our scripture as we begin our new series this morning. When Saul grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and accepted bribes, and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, that fateful day we've been waiting for for the last few months is here. We begin our new series today, A Summer of Kings. And as I was preparing for this, I, I came across what I thought would be the perfect introduction to this series. It's actually an introductory paragraph from a math textbook. So I'm going to show you the, the, the title of chapter 1, Thermodynamics and Statistical Mechanics. It's the first paragraph that I want you to see as we get a little bit closer. You kind of see where we're headed. Here's how it reads. Ludwig Boltzmann who spent much of his life studying statistical mechanics, died in 1906 by his own hand. Paul Ehrenfest, carrying on the work, died similarly in 1933. Now it is our turn to study statistical mechanics. <laughs> what a way to start a semester. What a way to start this series, A Summer of Kings. Now, I don't anticipate that this is going to be quite as painful as thermodynamics and statistical mechanics, but just prepare yourselves that the stories of the kings of Israel and Judah are difficult, and they are hard work. In fact, if, if we're honest, most of us Christians are not as proficient in the Old Testament as we are in the New Testament, and if we're weaker in the Old Testament, if there's any area of the Old Testament that we probably know the least about, it's probably the period of the kings of Israel and Judah. And yet I believe we're going to see this summer that though these stories are difficult, they have lots of names that are hard to pronounce, they may seem sort of, sort of distant from us in a lot of their cultural 
uh, the things that they describe and, and, and things along those lines, we're going to see that these stories are incredibly relevant to the culture in which we live right now, to the nation in which we live right now. And we're going to see as we go through the stories of the king, some are familiar to you, some won't be as familiar, some consistent themes. The stories of, of the kings are going to, to begin by saying either this king did right in the eyes of the Lord, or others are going to say this king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And in either case, we're going to see what follows based on the faithfulness and the obedience of the kings and the people of God are consequences, either good or bad, for the way that they chose to live. And we'll see that when those kings who were faithful led the people faithfully and the people followed faithfully, it was not necessarily always a time of prosperity, but it was a time when it was clear that God was at work in their midst and they were a part of it. But then there are other times where they chase after the false gods of the nations and the kings are the ones leading them down that road. They worship idols, lifeless images and things, and the leaders are, are complicit. And God warns them time and again, prophesies against them time and again, and they don't listen. And the consequences that follow lead to destruction. And for where we are in, a, in the times in which we live in these strange and evil days, the narratives of the kings of Israel and Judah have much to teach us. But I want to give us a few clarifications up front and I'll, I'll say these several weeks as we go into the series, and I'll, I'll get into more detail in later weeks as we follow. But I want to say these up front because I, I think these clarifications are important and they help get us in the right frame of mind for understanding these stories correctly. The first is, I'm not going to be equating Israel with America. Okay, and I think that's important because these stories are about a nation, a nation that ultimately is divided, these stories are about kings, they're about people, but, but they're, the, the, the stories and the prophecies, they, they don't all tie perfectly to America, though they are extremely instructive for a nation and for a group of people in a culture. The second clarification is we're, we're also not going to equate Israel with the church in every case. There, there's actually a, a, a theological misunderstanding called supersessionism that sees every prophecy about Israel as a prophecy about the church. But we'll talk about this in the weeks to come. There are some prophecies about Israel that still stand separately from those that are specifically for the church. So we won't, we won't always tie Israel to the church, but what we will do is talk about what it means to be God's covenant people and how these stories talk to those who would say, we as God's covenant people believe that God's promises to us are true and we also live in a covenantal relationship with God that we want to be people who honor our promises to him and we want to live as people of promise who are faithful in his eyes so we won't equate Israel with the church but we will talk about what it means to be the people of God and then finally if we read these texts correctly they will step on all of our toes, every single one of us. They'll step on our spiritual toes, our moral toes, our emotional toes, our political toes, our social toes, and our comfort toes. 
And there may be times during this series, this summer, where you are tempted to think he might be talking about one specific leader, one specific president or king or person from history. And I'll just tell you up front, every time you think that, the answer will be yes and no. Every time you think that, there will be some universal ideas that the Bible teaches us through these stories that apply to, to every leader you can probably think of. But at the same time, they're, they're general, general and applicable to all of us in such a way that, that the intention is not to isolate one over the other, but to keep our eyes focused where they ought to be and our hearts grounded in the love of God and our minds rooted in the Word of God from Scripture. So as we begin this series this morning, and, and soon we're going to turn to the first king of Israel, King Saul. I'm going to say this a couple of times because I think it's important. The tragedy that was the first kingship of Israel, that of King Saul, did not happen in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is that the 40-year reign of King Saul that was disastrous in so many ways, it didn't just come out of nowhere. There were lots of attitudes and cultural conditions, and there was a, a culture of disobedience that was developing among the people of God, the, the covenant people of God, that precipitated all that eventually followed with King Saul. To understand the first kingship of Israel, we first need to talk about the judges. And if the stories of the kings are hard, boy, the book of Judges is a hard book as well. And you'll remember the names of some of the judges, those who followed after Joshua. They led the people much as, as Moses had done. They, they helped decide what to do when there were difficult decisions to be made. Sometimes the judges led the people into battle when they had to face an enemy. But they were never to be called kings. Only God was to be given the title king. Some of the judges you may remember, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, what an awesome name that one is. Deborah, the female judge. Gideon, Jephthah, and most people know the name Samson. And by the time of Samson, who was the last judge in the book of Judges, the people of Israel, the people of God, had gone way off track. The nation was way off the rails. They were worshiping the false gods of the nations. They were worshiping idols, and if you go back and read the last couple chapters of Judges, they are as vile and violent as you will find anywhere in the Bible. And the book of, of Judges ends with this verse, the very last verse of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And so this is where people were. Again, the, the tragedy that was the first kingship of Israel, the kingship of, of Saul, it did not operate in a vacuum. It didn't come out of nowhere. But at the end of the period of the judges, Israel had no king, and everybody was just doing whatever they thought was right, doing as they saw fit. We see that into the book of Ruth, and then we see that into the text we read this morning from 1 Samuel. When we find the people now looking not for a judge, but for a king. If Samuel is the last judge... Then we transition into the period of the dynasties of the kings. And part one of the message today is going to be an overview for the whole series. 
So what we talk about first is, is meant to hang over everything we're going to talk about all summer because these things are so true and they will be consistently true throughout these stories. Part one is what 1 Samuel 8 describes. The people of Israel looking for a king in all the wrong places. And as a part of, of, of part one, here are some overarching principles I want us to see. First of all, a lack of integrity among leaders often becomes contagious among the people. So what happened as Samuel grew older, his sons, who everyone expected to inherit his role of leadership, how is this possible that sons of one of the greatest prophets in Israel turn out to be so evil? But Samuel's sons did not follow in their father's footsteps. They turned to evil. They went after dishonest gain. They accepted bribes. They perverted justice. And the lack of integrity that they demonstrated became contagious, and it leads to this culture in which the people begin clamoring for a king. But lest we think that everything this morning is going to be bad and negative and awful, let me remind you that good leadership and, and leadership with integrity can also be contagious. We're going to see stories of, of kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and we'll see how that kind of leadership, that kind of integrity, that kind of, of godly example also becomes contagious. And that can create itself a, a culture where people seek to do what is right and where people stand on truth no matter what comes their direction because that's, that's who they are as a people. I don't know if you've been watching the Women's College World Series of Softball on TV, but if you've not yet found the joy and love for college softball, you need to find it, and it's still on for a few more days. It's on all the time in my house, mostly because of my wife. But boy, I've sure come to appreciate the culture of college softball. I think one of the things that's best about it is that these young ladies are not playing for some multi-million dollar contract that will follow. They're not worshipped like idols, like so many other sports figures are. The college softball culture is all about winning. It's all about the team. It's all about that camaraderie. And it doesn't matter which team you watch, it's contagious. The way they love each other and support each other and, and they look like they're just having a blast all the time. Good leadership, good coaching, a culture where, where people live with integrity, that can also be contagious. But as I think about our own church, I am always praying when we think about things that are contagious in our culture, that those toxic attitudes that are all around us, which are clearly contagious, will not find their ways into our church. There is always something to be angry about these days, and there are some people who are just always angry. But I pray, and my prayer continues to be, that through the Holy Spirit, our staff and our church leadership and our church members will model Christ-like attitudes in such a way that it will be contagious. That people will see something in us that is different. They will see something in us that is not like all of that toxicity around us. And that people will take notice it is because of Christ that we are who we are. 
The tragedy that was the kingship of Saul did not happen in a vacuum. A lack of integrity among leaders becomes contagious among the people. And, and disobedient and toxic attitudes and actions, those things also become contagious. And ultimately, the people took their eyes off the Lord. And here's the second overarching principle. Spiritual decay begins when God's people take their eyes off of him and put their trust in anyone or anything else. A, a, a decay inside the community begins, and it spreads. What Samuel describes here, and, and Samuel is upset by this, is that the people have clearly taken their eyes off of the Lord, and they want to put their trust in somebody else. Why is it that the people wanted a king? Well, there's probably several reasons. One might be because of the danger of all of the, the, the military superpowers around them. We're going to hear about the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Canaanites throughout this series. Maybe they, they felt they needed someone else to protect them. Or it could have been because of the fact that they were growing as a nation. Their economy was growing. Their agriculture was growing. They, their political issues were, were growing. So, so they thought they needed a stronger leader. Or it may simply be what, what 1 Samuel describes that we often call the comparison trap. That they looked around at all the other nations and they said, we want what they have. Everyone else around us has a king, and so we want a king. We want to be like them. And they forgot that as the nation of Israel, as the people of God, that's never what God commissioned them to do. He didn't say to them, I want you to be like the other nations. He said to them, I want you to be set apart from the other nations. I want you to stand out. Don't set your highest goal as to keep up with everybody else around you. I have set you apart. And when I called your father Abraham, I said to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. You as my people are going to be holy as I am holy, set apart. And God said to them, as I bless you, you're going to become a blessing to the nations around you. That as the, the rest of the world would look to Israel, they would see the people of God reflecting the love and the character of God. They weren't supposed to be like everybody else. They were supposed to be set apart. But they said to Samuel, we want to be like everybody else. I love Psalm 20. And I've noted here that this is a psalm of David because he's the next king we're going to come to. And, and David, though he was certainly imperfect, had a heart and an attitude that far more often reflected the heart and the character of God. And the next time you are tempted to think that everything in the world hinges on the next election, this would be a great set of verses for you to memorize and to remember. Just as David wrote, even as he sat on the throne as king, now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king and answer us when we call. Spiritual decay begins when, when God's people take their eyes off of him and put their trust 
in anyone or anything else. And David says, some trust in chariots and horses. Another psalm says they trust in kings or princes. When God's people put their trust in a party or a tribe or in wealth or in any other thing that becomes an idol, and they take their eyes off of him, spiritual decay begins to set in in the community. And what follows spiritual decay are consequences. When God's people reject him and his word and his ways, he disciplines them, often allowing them to bring calamity on themselves. And as we go through the stories of the kings of Israel and Judah this summer, we're not going to feel sorry for them very often. And I want to be careful, intentional to, to say it in this way, that rather than seeing God as doing this to the people or at the people, rather God is simply allowing the calamity that they're bringing on themselves to take place as the consequence of their disobedience, the consequence of their rejection. We're going to see the people of God constantly struggling with so many things. We've talked about the Philistines, the Amalekites. One of the biggest struggles that the people of Israel faced were the gods of the Canaanites. It seemed like everybody north of Egypt, no matter the culture, worshipped these Canaanite gods. And in the Canaanite pantheon, they had gods of the sky, the earth, the sea, the sun, and the moon. And the two we're going to hear about the most often are Baal and Asherah. And Baal and his wife Asherah demanded as part of their worship, the worship of, of them as gods in their temples, but also of their idols. They demanded some of the vilest, most evil sins you'll read about in the Bible. The worship of Baal, of Baal was often done with, with significant sexual immorality and also very real violence, sometimes even towards children. And yet we're going to see that the people of God the people who know the one true God, who have been called by his name, who have been set apart to be different from the rest of the world, they're going to worship those gods too. They're going to bow down before those idols, those lifeless things, and they're going to participate in those vile, sinful activities at times. And their kings, more often than not, will be the ones who lead them down that path. But remember, what God said to Samuel. Samuel, don't take this personally. The people are calling out for a king. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. And because of that, there, there are going to be consequences. And yet what we're going to see, listen, as we go through this series, no matter what the people to do, God never changes. God never changes. And his leadership is always with them. The problem is they take it for granted. They take for granted the true kingship of God. They take for granted his sovereign will and his power. They stop listening to his divine guidance. They stop noticing his providence and all that he's been doing in their midst. And so he warns them in verse 9 through Samuel, warn them solemnly and let them know if they want a king, I will give them one. But what he's going to claim as his rights is, is ultimately not going to be something that they want to receive. And the next verses we won't read, but you can read them on your own time. Samuel warns them clearly, if you go down this road, it's not going to end well. 
but a king they wanted and so a king they got like a loving father god disciplines his people and so now we turn to the first king of israel now forgive me this morning for for talking about saul in a way that's going to be very brief though i'm sure you'll be okay with that but as we talk about the rise and fall of king saul which i'm i'm calling here in part two a formula for failure to really talk about all that we could we'd have to read over 20 chapters and so we're obviously not going to do that in fact very quickly i'll be able to to sum up for us the downward spiral that we see in the in the rise and the fall of king saul but let me just encourage you if you want to this summer if you want to read all of first samuel and second samuel and first kings and second kings and go ahead and throw in first and second chronicles just for fun i will give you a gold star at the end of the summer okay i encourage you to do that but but rather than giving you a reading guide like sometimes i'll do what i'm going to do for us throughout the summer is just give us some resources to help us navigate this understand it from a big picture perspective because that's my goal rather than getting into all the details we might when we do a more detailed study of one book again i want us to see how these ancient stories are so timely and so relevant to the times in which we live and as we talk about king saul we're going to go from the the big picture in the community to the very personal level and the first time we meet Saul is in the very next chapter from which we read. We're now in 1 Samuel 9. And Samuel, by the way, as a prophet, is, his life is intricately interwoven with that of Saul and ultimately with David. In fact, later Samuel is going to be called a kingmaker because of the role he plays in the rise of these two kings. But Saul comes first, starting in 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a Benjamite... A man of standing whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel. Look at verse 2. And Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. So when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. So as you read through this, you'll notice this in the Hebrew as well. The most distinguishing characteristics of Saul had nothing to do with his character or his leadership, but that he was good-looking and he was tall. Much like people still say today that the tall, good-looking guy usually gets the job, even if he's not as qualified, right? Same thing clearly was true in Israel. You might say it this way, Saul made a great first impression. He was a good-looking guy, he was tall, he was a young man in the prime of his life. But it doesn't take long during this 40-year reign of King Saul to see the signs of his flaws in character and judgment. Begins in 1 Samuel 13, really, where King Saul disregarded God. This is where it began. And this is an interesting story because this is an encounter with the Philistines. And God, through the prophet Samuel, tells King Saul you're going to win this battle i'm going to deliver the philistines into your hands but i want you to wait and do this in my timing basically what god says to saul is i want you to wait until i say go before you do anything but saul grew impatient 
as we see often in his character. He was ready to forge ahead. After all, everyone hated the Philistines. And why wouldn't you? These were people who had dominated the people of Israel time and again. They'd set up garrisons on all of the roads leading to the major cities so that when the Philistines were in power, all the Israelites had to check in before they could go home. If they needed to call chariots or soldiers to enforce their laws, they would do it. And the Philistines did everything they could to keep the people of Israel down. So Saul is ready. He's ready to charge into battle, defeat their enemies, and God ultimately gives them the victory. But through Samuel, God warns Saul, don't ever do that again. You wait for my timing. You follow my instructions to the letter. You are not the king. I am the king. And you are my servant. But unfortunately, Saul doesn't learn his lesson. In 1 Samuel 15, it, it moves from King Saul disregarding God to flat out disobeying God. In this case, the enemy is not the Philistines, but it's the Amalekites. And once again, through Samuel, God says to Saul, I'm going to deliver your enemies into your hands, but here's what I want you to do. Because the Amalekites are so evil, because their entire cities and nation are filled with so much iniquity, I want you to burn it all down. I don't want you to leave one animal alive. I don't want you to believe, leave one building standing and when you find their gold and you find their, all, all of their treasures, I want you to melt them down. I want you to leave nothing behind. But what does Saul do? He constantly seems to think he knows better than God and knows better than Samuel, who delivers the word of God. And so Saul destroys the buildings. They slaughter the animals. They kill the people. But he allows his soldiers to plunder the gold and the wealth. He allows them to take back the things that are just so shiny, so pretty, that they can't bring themselves to destroy them. And when they plunder the Amalekites, God says to Saul through Samuel, that's it. This is what 1 Samuel 15, 11 says. God says to Samuel, I have rejected Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And though Saul begs Samuel for now a third chance, a fourth chance, Samuel says, you're not going to get it. And here's something else, by the way. God has already chosen your successor. And in 1 Samuel 16, God leads Samuel to go anoint another good-looking young man named David. And while Saul is living and reigning as king, he now has to begin to live with the idea that someone better whom God has chosen is already waiting in the wings. And what we see in the last chapters of 1 Samuel, the consequences of the disobedience of Saul not only affect God's people, the nation not only begins to break apart and to go down a dangerous path, but King Saul's leadership and life unraveled. What happens after David is anointed? For the better part of Saul's 40-year reign, he spent most of his time trying to overcompensate for his insecurity towards David. 
Samuel had made clear that God had chosen David over Saul. But to complicate things further, who was David's best friend? Jonathan, Saul's son. By the way, if you like a good drama, read through these books and the stories of the kings. There's a lot of drama in these stories. David's best friend is Jonathan, and Saul just can't handle it. He becomes obsessed with David, and his furious pursuit of David led him finally to a series of breakdowns to the point that it was clear that old King Saul was not well mentally and emotionally. And Saul's story does not end well. Here's another example of someone in Scripture who doesn't finish well, nor does he finish gracefully. And if you look all the way to the end of 1 Samuel, here's the way things end for old King Saul. 1 Samuel 31, starting in verse 1. Once again, they're fighting the Philistines, but this time God says, you're not going to win. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. So Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. I mean, you don't kill your own king. You certainly don't lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. So Saul took his own sword, and he becomes one of the most famous examples of falling on your own sword. He fell on it, and he died. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword, and he died with him. And so Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all of his men died together that same day. Saul did not fall on his sword because of thermodynamics and statistical mechanics. Going to where we began. This happened because this long downward spiral this pattern of disobedience he disregarded god he outright disobeyed him and everything in his life began to unravel and listen i want you to hear me on this because i think this is another consistent part of the stories on the kings if you watch a leader long enough a leader who doesn't demonstrate integrity a leader who is not representing godly character ultimately you will finally see their life unravel and their leadership unravel now i know there may be some exceptions it may feel like at times boy that evil person went all the way through their life and they never faced any consequences but i guarantee you if they don't face the consequences here they're waiting for them in the life to come it will unravel and your sin will find you out and king saul is not just an example of a powerful person who fell but a person who said he belonged to God a person who said he wanted to be used by God a person who had multiple opportunities to write the course of his life but instead his life ended in an absolute implosion and destruction so as we think about 
all that we've heard this morning, the overarching principles, the more personal story about Saul, let me close by just speaking to us in a couple of different ways. First of all, to, to God's covenant people as a whole. Remember, we're, we're not equating Israel with America. We're not equating Israel with the church. But, but if we belong to Jesus Christ, we are God's covenant people, new covenant people. And we live in a covenantal relationship with him. And so if that is the case, if that's who we are, and I believe that it is, we must always remember that a lack of integrity in leadership and in others becomes contagious, just as we talked about. And we must be like we read the story in the New Testament, Jesus before Pilate, people who, who believe what Jesus has said is true. Whoever is on my side is on the side of truth. And no matter how tempted we might feel to compromise, we must never do it. We might be tempted to think we can accomplish spiritual ends by evil means. It doesn't work that way. A lack of integrity among God's people, among God's leaders, is contagious. And as God's people, we, we must demand leadership that's better than that, and we must live as people who are better than that. As God's covenant people, if, if we take our eyes off of God, and put our trust in anyone or anything else, that spiritual decay that we see happening here in Israel will happen among us. And if we reject God's word, God's ways, or God himself, we deserve what we get. We bring the calamities upon ourselves because, like a loving father, God will discipline us. And as God's people, these are important things for us to remember. But now let me speak to you personally. And let me do this just by asking three questions as we, as we close. Is there any area of your life where you would say this morning, I have disregarded God? Or is there an area, are there areas where you feel tempted to disregard God, to say, you know, I, I think I, I'm going to try this. Maybe I know better. Maybe, maybe this doesn't apply to me. You've seen where that disregarding ends an example it doesn't end well is there any area of your life where you you are, are tempted or are actually disregarding god or maybe it's worse than that maybe is there an area in your life where you are just living in flat-out disobedience you know that it's not god's will you know that you're disobeying god's word but you're you're doing it anyway and maybe and listen this is really important maybe there's someone who would say I've been living in disobedience my whole life. I've never actually truly asked God to forgive me. Sure, maybe there have been some times where I, I wanted to cover my bases, but I've never actually said, God, forgive me and change my heart. I've never actually repented, which means I'm headed down this path of sinfulness and disobedience, but I'm going to turn away from it, and I'm going to give my whole life to the Lord and follow Him. If you've never done that, whether you're here in person or, or online, what more important thing could you do today than say to God in these last moments we have together, here's my heart, here's my life. Forgive my sins, make me a new creation, a new person as I follow you with my whole life. Is there any area where you're living in disobedience to God? Or the last question, do you feel like your life is unraveling today? There's got to be someone. 
who feels like the parts of your life are just unraveling when we have our time of invitation in a moment i want you to remember that our ministers are also here to pray with you to pray for you if, if you're at a low point this morning and you need somebody to pray with you and pray for you please do that and don't forget we're available for you anytime sometimes i think we we feel like we have no one to talk to your ministers men and women we are here for you throughout the week if you just need to talk if you need to pray make an appointment come see me come see one of our other ministers don't go through this this feeling of life unraveling without talking to somebody about it but this morning if you need somebody to pray for you about that let's do it the invitation this morning is for us as a church to remain grounded in god's word and to be faithful but it's also an invitation for you personally if you feel like the lord is speaking to your heart and calling you to come to christ after i pray we're going to sing a song and you you come to christ right now this morning don't wait one other second before you come and give your life to him let's pray together